In My Teacher's Footsteps, Chapter Two, read by Nick Scott. To prepare for their walk across the Himalayas to Mount Kailash in Tibet, Ajahn Amaro, Stephen Batchelor, and Nick undertake a training trek in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco in early spring. Chapter Two: Delight in the Dharma. He suggests not arising instead of ceasing. Ajahn Amro spoke in short, clipped sentences. Between heavy breathing, as they climb the rocky track together ahead of us, in his book on dependent origination. Oh, interesting," replied Stephen, stopping to take this in, along with some even deeper breaths, as he leant heavily on his walking stick. Ajahn also stopped, leant on his stick, and turned to him. Yes. And so he translates the third noble truth simply as non-arising. Ah, very good," said Stephen, too tired to offer anything more. They've been talking like this since we started out an hour earlier, as they had done for much of each day on this training journey, usually walking well ahead of us, side by side, deep in conversation. Their light metal walking poles tapping an accompanying staccato rhythm. Only occasionally would Mish and I catch up, and so hear a brief excerpt. We instead were both taken with Morocco's Atlas Mountains, stopping often to examine plants or rocks, or to use our binoculars to watch passing birds. Today, however, having started with this long climb, the track zigzagging up the steep valley side. We were all getting tired, particularly Stephen. The next time we caught up with them, he was collapsed beside a turn of the track. We weren't much better ourselves, so we plumped down beside him. Mish asked, "What's wrong?" "I'm really pooped. Too much theology." "But what about the non-arising?" "Well." There's the non-arising of the energy to climb. Meanwhile, our young guide was standing at the next turn above, patiently waiting for us. By now, getting used to our slow progress, his estimates of how many hours we'd take had proved very optimistic. On the first day, he'd had to hurry us up to reach the night stop before dark. Ajahn Amro and Stephen. We're also enjoying the landscape, occasionally stopping to admire a sweeping view of the dry foothills rolling away to the south, or the snow-covered mountain ridges above us. Ajahn would then take photos, either of a scene or of the unusual colouring of so much of the exposed geology, like purple cliff faces or mottled dark green sheets of rock. With features like this, Stephen would also get his camera out, but to film it. 
Much of the time, though, that is, when they were not too tired, they were engrossed in conversation. The two of them were about the same height, Ajahn dressed in his ochre monk's robes and wide-brimmed sun hat dyed the same colour, Stephen in a light green jacket and black beret. They were also about the same age, grey-haired and passing sixty. As they were also both old friends of mine, I was quietly enjoying their enjoyment of each other. I was also interested in the snippets from their discussions on Buddhist teachings, sometimes even managing to join in myself. But that wasn't the case for Mish. Will they not shut up for a bit? She had murmured beside me the day before, as we all stood together above a cliff, with wonderful views back up the valley we'd been walking through. Our track had just risen out of the vibrant green world of the irrigated valley floor onto the arid semi-desert slopes, and the contrast, looking back, was now spectacular. After some fifteen minutes, I suggested we might move on, at which Ajahn Amro replied, But we're looking at the view. Their conversation stopped then, and Mish had ten minutes not being distracted by an accompanying discussion on Buddhist ethics. When we did move, I deliberately allowed them to again walk ahead, and Mish, relieved, commented, They weren't looking at the view. But I was torn. Ajahn Amro and Stephen were both known for the depth of their understanding of the Buddhist scriptures, and their conversation seemed profound to me. My few contributions seemed like some country yokel trying to make a point at a sophisticated urban dinner party. I couldn't even manage the language. One of them usually needed to correct at least one expression I'd use. However, I'd resolved that this walk was not for my benefit. Yes, I needed to become fitter for the Himalayan pilgrimage the following month, and to acclimatise both to altitude and heat. But Mish was not coming to Mount Kailash, so she deserved to enjoy this trip, and my other two companions had both left behind a lot of responsibility. In Marrakesh, I'd booked accommodation in the old town. The taxi from the airport dropped Ajahn Amro, Mish and me where the narrow streets began, and from there we followed a porter wheeling our bags ahead in a cart down winding stone-flagged alleys hemmed in by shops, houses and small hotels, the sky a narrow slit above. Eventually, we reached an arched doorway, made of stone with a large solid wood door studded with square iron nails. According to the guidebook recommendation, this was once the house of someone important, recently converted as an annex to a hotel we'd passed, and it was one of the tallest buildings in the old town, with good views from a rooftop garden. A hotel employee showed us up to that roof terrace, 
where he served us mint tea, confirming that Stephen had arrived earlier. From there we looked out over a thousand assorted roofs, clay tiled or with corrugated tin, some with battlements or small towers, others flat with gardens or even tents, but each with the obligatory white satellite dish. Beyond them, the ancient crenellated town walls had brightly dressed tourists walking along them, while the tops of leaning date palms designated a famous palace garden. Here and there, clacking stalks nested atop abandoned towers, crumbling sections of the town wall or electricity poles. A slight haze left from the day's dusty heat hung over it all, but rising out of the haze, in the far distance and crystal clear, were the Atlas Mountains covered in snow. Stephen had been out to explore the old town. He joined us on his return, expressing appreciative comments about his room, which was beside a small tiled pool in an inner courtyard. He told us this was the first real holiday he'd taken since he returned to Europe to start teaching and writing more than 20 years before. After more mint tea, Stephen guided us back through the warren of streets and across the town square to the sulk, where we joined the bustling crowds squeezing between colourful stalls selling carpets, pottery, shoes, fruit, jackets or some other commodity. Immediately inside the market's entrance, every stall was aimed at tourists, with owners frantically beckoning us in. But as we penetrated the narrow streets further, we came to stalls frequented by locals, where the owners were more relaxed. There we bought supplies for our journey ahead, nuts, dried fruit, whole cheeses, big slabs of chocolate, and slices of nougat and sesame cake cut from big trays, things we thought unlikely to be available in the mountains. Returning across the square, the call to prayer started from a nearby mosque, followed by other Muslims competing for the faithful. Meanwhile, the crowds were now coalescing into groups of spectators, each encircling a different performance. Dancers, jugglers, car trick men. On the far side, we stopped at a cafe beside a small mosque where men queued to wash at two large white porcelain sinks on an outside wall before going in to pray. Stephen sat outside the cafe, his ankles crossed, sipping at a coffee. I have a lot of respect, both for the amount of teaching Stephen does around the world, just for donations, and for his scholarship. It's a lonely and brave path he's taken, inquiring into our inheritance from the Eastern Buddhist traditions to tease out what the Buddha might have actually taught. So I really hoped he was going to come with us to Mount Kailash. He now told us that perhaps he could fly to Lhasa to join us for the actual circumambulation of the mountain. I thought that wouldn't work logistically, but it was a start. Perhaps, if the rest of the trip went as well as this. 
That evening, us three lay people ate in a nearby restaurant. It was Stephen's idea, and although I prefer eating my main meal around midday, I was trying to forsake my wishes on this trip. And Mish, of course, had no problem. So we joined him at a restaurant billed outside as the best in Marrakesh. Stephen likes his sensual pleasures and enjoys poking fun at what he perceives as my Theravadan prudery. And here he had the perfect setting. The restaurant was literally palatial, having been a royal residence. Our table was in an enclosed tiled courtyard and set back amidst intricate latticed stonework, looking out on a fountain playing in a pool with scented plants climbing the wall beyond. The many waiters, more than there were diners, wore silk sashes over black evening dress. And off the courtyard was the most fabulous room, sky-blue tiled with exquisite Islamic non-pictural designs. Stephen insisted we had to order a good bottle of wine. That's something else he pokes fun at me about. My reluctance to drink alcohol. His Zen Buddhist tradition has no problem with drinking, and although he doesn't indulge in it, he does enjoy good wine. Mish, being half French, had no problem with this either. It was a lovely evening, a perfect finale to our first day. Towards the end, Stephen admitted that today was his 60th birthday, the start of the year he'd taken off for himself. That was why he wanted to have such a nice meal. Mish and I were so pleased, we clapped. Next morning, we set off for the Atlas Mountains in a grand taxi. These are the large, battered old Mercedes, which ply the long-distance routes to other towns. Owls so soft on its springs that it sighed over every bump. Usually, they are filled to the brim with locals, but the guidebook advised we hire one for ourselves. After an hour's haggling, we set off to Azalil which was halfway to our destination, the less frequented and distant region of Magon, where the Atlas Mountains are just as high as those nearer Marrakesh, but less steep. I'd planned a trek that began easily, but would eventually take us to the top. At Azalil, which like Marrakesh is set in the dusty but cultivated Moroccan plain just north of the mountains, we had to procure another grand taxi to take us into the mountain valleys. The bartering for the taxi, as for everything else, had to be done by Stephen or Mish, as I have no French, Morocco was once a French colony, and Ajahn Amro no money. But by this point, Mish was gently excluding Stephen from this task, as he had no inclination at all to haggle. Whatever someone asked for, he would pay, even though he knew afterwards he'd regretted. 
When we first met him in Marrakesh, he complained about the taxi fare from the airport. We found he'd paid far more for one person in a taxi than we'd paid for three. It was late afternoon by the time the old taxi wound up the last of the long mountain valleys. We'd passed through several old Berber villages of tall mud houses, and now Imulgas, the village at the trailhead, was coming into view. The driver had been speaking earlier on his mobile phone, and here we met the result, a local man loitering at the roadside waiting to join us. Once in the car, he proved to speak English, and having made friends, he then offered to organise both where we stayed that night and to help us plan our trek. He seemed nice enough, so we decided to trust him. His first advice was about the snow. There'd been a big fall over the last few days. That's why the peaks had looked so impressive from Marrakesh. And as a result, most of the passes were closed. The route I'd planned, starting with a gentle few days, was impossible. The only pass that was sure to be open was the one directly above us, a climb straight up of well over a thousand metres. He suggested we spend the next day walking in the valley while he found out more and sought us a guide, supplies and mules. So the next day we wandered up a side valley, past small fields of verdant young wheat or little orchards of apple and pear trees coming into flower, following small canals running with water and lined by towering walnut trees. Everywhere birds sang a frantic spring chorus amidst the greenery. In contrast, the valley sides were dry and only supported low grey scrub. Further up, there were dark green evergreens, beyond which the high mountain ridges were blanketed in white. Occasionally, a Berber in traditional clothes passed us, trotting on a mule or sauntering along, usually with a mattock over one shoulder. Most of the men wore long brown woollen garments with hoods which Stephen thought rather nice housecoats. The women were in multicoloured dresses with scarves draped lightly over their heads. At one village, guided by a band of children, we found a wide sheet of rock impregnated with dinosaur footsteps, along with a battered interpretation board. Later we stopped to eat our lunch on a grass bank beside a tinkling canal, serenaded by cicadas and the midday call to prayer, after which Stephen snoozed on his back under the shade of a small stand of white poplars. From there we climbed steeply up the spur dividing our side valley and the main one on a dry slope dotted with stunted and twisted ancient cedars and sprawling juniper bushes. That wasn't easy. It took a sweaty hour, toiling steeply uphill before we emerged onto a ridgetop covered in arid grassland, more rocky soil than plants, but with an arcing pale blue sky above and magnificent views out across the two valleys either side. 
a herd of goats grazed in the distance with a shepherd leaning on a long stick. Making towards him, we came upon a newly bulldozed track, which we followed as it then descended the steep slopes of the main valley by contouring along the side. And Ajahn Amro and Stephen could stroll ahead again, side by side, in conversation. They had by then got to discussing Ajahn Amro's relative, I.B. Horner, who first translated many of the Buddhist Theravadan texts, starting nearly a century before. They were now both referring to her using her family nickname, Bobby. When I caught them up, Stephen commented to me how surprisingly pleasant all this was, and I took the opportunity to tell him the trek through the Himalayan valleys to Mount Kailash should be much the same. We would have our gear carried on mules, as we would here, once we were underway. Back at the house, our friend was waiting. He'd found a young guide, the younger ones being cheaper, he explained. Two mules and muleteers. He also had our food and confirmation that we had no alternative to the steep climb next day, as all the other passes were closed. Something Mish was dreading. His solution for her was an extra mule, just to the top, on which she could opt to ride for part of the climb. Mish was reluctant, but when Stephen pointed out that he too could make use of the mule, she gave in. We met our guide, Mohammed, next morning. He was dressed in western clothes, with a small day-pack slung on one shoulder, but sporting one Berber accessory. A large, thin scarf, which was wrapped round his neck when we first met him, but later worn either as an enormous twisted turban, or wrapped loosely over his head for shade, and flowing down his back. It was bright pink, with a flowery design and very feminine. Mish suggested he'd borrowed it from his wife for the walk. But if so, then other men we later met in the mountains had each done the same. Our muleteers turned out to be our friend's brother-in-law, who we already knew well. It was his house we'd been staying in, and he'd served our meals plus his young nephew. And the mules were not their own, but were to be borrowed from a neighbour. Our muleteers were so excited by the prospect that I suspected neither would normally have done such a trip. As our supplies were still piled in the yard and there was no sign of the mules, we started before them, so we could climb in the cool of the morning, collecting another man leading the extra mule as we passed through the village. We climbed all that morning on a rough mule track, winding up through twisted cedars and juniper bushes, the few behind us gradually opening out so we could catch glimpses of all the foothills on this side of the mountain and of the distant hazy plain. Kites turned on thermals above us, and mountain chuffs drifted past giving their long high-pitched cry. The day before, over a hundred chuffs had circled above us, ragged black birds with blood-red beaks and feet. 
About halfway up, the muleteers passed us, riding their mules on top of the supplies. I wondered if they would have done that if the beasts were their own. By then it was getting hot and we were starting to tire. Mish had already reckoned the extra mule a great success, even before she gave in and mounted, as the sight of the long climb above was no longer so daunting. Once she'd mounted, swaying ahead of us, it was noticeable how only she regained the enthusiasm to comment on everything around her. Her only complaint? She couldn't get close enough to the plants she was now noticing to identify them. By now we were above the tree line, and small map-forming alpine plants had started to appear, some with delicate pink flowers. The snow on the pass ahead was much closer, but still we were climbing upwards. Arjun Amro usually climbs like a small truck, putting himself in low gear and then ascending steadily with no need to stop, so that his companions have to suggest taking the brakes. But now the altitude was affecting us all, so that even he would come to a full stop, gasping large breaths for five minutes before starting up again. I was also struggling, and noticed to my surprise that Stephen and Mish, who had each taken a ride on the mule when they were tired, were much less affected by the altitude when they did climb. I pointed this out to Stephen during a break just before the top, and he told me that yes, it was easier than he'd feared, and he was enjoying even the challenge of this long climb. And how was the mule? I asked. The beast was incredibly sure-footed, even over narrow places, but I couldn't help feeling rather sad for the poor creature. We finally reached the pass after trudging through large patches of deep snow for the last hour and wrapped in most of our warm clothing. But once through the slight notch in the mountain ridge, we found the southern side snow-free and at midday pleasantly warm. The muleteers awaited us, sheltered behind a crag and had cooked us lunch using their gas stove. We ate, perched on the lip of the mountain ridge, gazing down across the waves of lower hills that disappeared eventually into a haze, where the Sahara Desert started. To our right, the highest mountains were still completely covered in snow, with Igul Magon, a long white whale, rising in the middle, awaiting us. Here, on the lee side of the mountains, sheltered from the prevailing westerly winds which bring the little precipitation that the atlas receives, everything was much drier. There were no trees or scrub on the slopes, and from this distance the landscape appeared to be just multicoloured rock and scree in bands of traversing geology. Some of the colours were spectacular. They were light pinks, mauves, dark greens amidst the dominant ochre. The walking was now easy. Descending gradually as we traversed the slope, we kept the panoramic view for the first hour. Our guide was now beginning to realise what an untypical walking group we were. 
we were passed on the descent by the kind of group he would have been used to. The only other one we were to see on this trip made so early in the season. Some twenty trekkers, plus lots of laden mules and muleteers, all intent on getting there. They sped past us now that they were over the pass and going downhill, and they were soon out of sight. We, meanwhile, strolled along chatting, stopping to take in anything of the slightest interest. Ajahn Amro and Stephen even stopping sometimes just because their conversation had reached some important point while myself and Mish regularly wandered off the path to look at unusual plants. At one stop, Stephen told us how similar this was to the raw landscape of much of Tibet. It too was a mountain desert with strikingly coloured rock formations. The few villages there also occurred beside small rivers running with mountain snowmelt used for irrigation with similar-looking houses, mud and stone walled with flat mud roofs, and the people had the same open friendliness. He mused that perhaps he should come with us, that it would be rather nice. He'd questioned whether he should go, as he'd turned his back so publicly on Tibetan Buddhism because of all the superstitious beliefs. But he still respected it and the act of pilgrimage itself. That was always a good thing. It would also be good to honour the tradition which first provided the Dharma for him in his sixtieth year. And he could help us. The only problem was Martine. She'd like to return to their old monastery in Korea. With a clatter of hooves, two men appeared over the rise in the track ahead, wearing faded turbans, traditional hooded felt coats with rifles and bandoleros slung over their shoulders, and red ribbons bleached pink on the reins of their tough mountain ponies. As Mish instinctively raised her camera to capture this fabulous sight, one of them shouted roughly, No! 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 as the other raised his rifle. Instead, we just exchanged curt bonjours as they trotted down the slope past us. This valley, away from electricity and a proper road, was known for its traditional Berber culture, so we decided to spend two nights here so we could wander like this through a few of the hamlets. At the valley head, there'd been a crumbling caspar a towering crenulated fort made of mud and stone with slit windows, its walls slightly splayed at their base. Such forts had also stood abandoned in each of the valleys we'd passed through on our first day's walk. The oak and mud houses with a wide border of whitewash around each window were also similar, but in these villages they were without modern adornments such as satellite dishes. In fact, the only part of the houses not originating from the valley itself were the ornate metal grills in each window. There was no glass behind these, 
Instead, they had warm wooden shutters outside, made like the doors, out of rough planks, presumably poplar, as that was the only tree we saw. The children in these valleys were also poorer. They all ran barefoot, and their cries of bom-bom, bom-bom, were much more insistent. At a rest stop, Stephen sat down with his back against a large boulder and commented how nice it was to have so little to do and how unusual that was for him these days, to which Mish added, But I thought that was what meditation was all about. Meditation has rather become my job, he replied with a slight weariness. It was at this stop that Ajahn Amro and Stephen shared how they'd both been sensitive children. So much so, Ajahn Amro told us, that his family had to prevent him seeing the Bambi movie, as he'd be too upset by the traumatic parts. They also found they were both the youngest child of mothers who were unusually sensitive themselves. Stephen was brought up a vegetarian, and Ajahn was surrounded by the many animals his mother liked to care for. I asked if they thought that was why they'd both taken a lot of drugs as teenagers. Oh yes, Stephen replied. I was so sensitive, I was taking drugs by the time I was fifteen to cope with the painfulness of life. Me too, and it's why I drank so much alcohol, added Ajahn. And they agreed that their sensitivity had also been part of the attraction of monastic life. They had a lot in common. Both had a liberal, middle-class upbringing. Both were sent to good schools by parents who'd hoped they would turn out as doctors or architects or some other professional of use to society. But they'd both become Buddhist monks before they were 22. That must have disappointed your parents, I commented. Yes, very much, answered Ajahnamro. My father made a condition in his will that I couldn't have my third if I was still a monk. But my parents eventually thawed when they saw me doing something of worth. For Ajahn Amro, that was publishing the book of our walk across England together. For Stephen, there had also been a book, and the translating he did for famous monks, including the Dalai Lama, when they came to Europe. He was seen on TV. After that, their respective parents were willing to admit to their friends and neighbours what their sons were. Walking again through this valley, behind the two of them, I recalled how I'd once, long before, followed behind Ajahn Amaro, then a junior monk, strolling beside Ajahn Samedo, our teacher, delighting in their enjoyment of each other. That was at the end of a week-long walk in England in the mid-80s. We'd started in Lancashire's Forest of Boland, a semi-wild area originally set aside for royal hunting, crossed the limestone pavements of Silverdale, dotted with flowers, and found our way to the Lake District, where we had climbed through the mountains. It rained most days, and Ajahn Sumedo struggled with the climbing, whilst carrying a heavy pack containing his camping gear. But afterwards, he only had praise for the experience. He used it to illustrate talks, both on the right attitude to difficulty, 
and to share the wonderful sense of freedom that comes with simple walking. But that last day had been easy. The weather had cleared, the sky was blue, and all we had to do was slowly descend a long high ridge with views as far as the distant coast. Halfway along the ridge I realised we were going to be late again, but I couldn't hurry him this time. They were so obviously relaxed and enjoying themselves, chatting as they walked along. When we turned up two hours late and the woman collecting them, really worried, had contacted the mountain rescue, it was me that received all the blame. But it was worth it. On this walk Ajahn Amro was older than Ajahn Sumedho had been then, and he was now the venerated elder. Their discussion as they strolled ahead had moved on to the teaching of one of the early Greek philosophers. His teaching, Stephen was saying, was that one should not conceptualise and thus find a mind without words, and through that find a mind that did not have trouble, which is much the same as the Buddha taught. And I had a question. In all this Greek stuff, does anyone give desire as the cause of suffering? No, not that I have read, replied Stephen. But I feel the Buddha refers to desire as a cause because he was teaching in India, and the Hindu teachings point to desire as the cause of suffering. Thus the Jains do too. But you don't need to conceptualise it in that way. Like that Greek chap in his garden you mentioned earlier, I suggested. The one who was going on about enjoyment and that the state of mind was the important thing, not the thing you were enjoying. Yes, that chap was Timon, and he doesn't mention desire. It's not essential. We'd stayed the previous night in the first village we came to in the valley, where our muleteers had been sent ahead to secure the best rooms in the only guest house. On our return, we were told the local villagers reckoned our planned route into the higher mountains wasn't possible with mules because of the recent snow. I suspected our guides always knew this, as neither he nor the muleteers seemed to be carrying anything for a night outside. They said our only choice now was to follow the Valley of the Roses trail, which led down through the foothills to a town on the other side of the mountains, from where we could travel back to Marrakesh. We wouldn't get the altitude training I'd hoped for, or get to the top as I'd wanted to, but perhaps it was for the best. Stephen and Mish would certainly enjoy the easier option. And after all, this walk wasn't for me. Galukpas came to power in 1662 after the Dalai Lama's warlords beat the Kamapas warlords, Stephen explained as we sat about the breakfast table two days later. Now this is important as this is playing out now. Naive Westerners are saying, when the Dalai Lama dies, this nice young Kamapa can take over. 
That's head-in-the-cloud stuff. To the Tibetans, this is the real issue. The last thing the Golukpas will tolerate is the Kamapa having any position because he's the head of the Kagyupa. In Dharamsala today, they have restricted his movement. They don't want this Kamapa to go to America, to go abroad, to get any profile at all. They're afraid he'll be perceived as representing all the Tibetans. It was fascinating listening to Stephen outline Tibetan history. He'd started that morning by explaining how Buddhism was introduced in the 7th century by Songten Gampo, the first ruler to conquer most of the Tibetan plateau, and how the new king had needed this foreign religion to help create a more unified Tibetan nation. It was this king who patronised the great Buddhist saint Padmasambhava, the Tibetan equivalent of Island St. Patrick, an Indian who roamed the country vanquishing pagan gods and establishing the foundation of the new religion. Songten Gampo's dynasty then reigned for over 150 years during which Buddhism flourished, until the last king in the dynasty tried to reintroduce the old animist Bon religion and was assassinated rather embarrassingly, commented Stephen, by a Buddhist monk. Tibet then fell apart into local fiefdoms, only some of which were Buddhist. Is that when monasticism was suppressed and why the Nyingma developed the householder mode of practice? asked Ajahn Amaro. I think suppressed is the wrong word, replied Stephen the monasteries were simply no longer sustainable, though of course the bompars would have targeted monks. But yes, monasticism then needed to be reintroduced. And once it was, 300 years later, the old Nyingma tradition could only continue to survive in remote parts of Tibet, well away from the new centre of power in Lhasa, like the area around Mount Kailash, where you're going to. This conversation took place after breakfast as we sat on the first-floor terrace, looking out over the valley's little green fields, where the locals were already at work. There we were being serenaded by nightingales. In the dry hills we'd crossed the day before, the only birds we saw were two eagles, just dots circling on a thermal above a distant cliff, and a few dowdy cousins of birds we knew at home a wheat ear, a couple of stone chats calling, and a ring that darted off between some rocks. But once down here amidst the greenery, birds were everywhere, particularly the nightingales. The guide had told us that this day would be a short one, even for us. There would be no climbing as we'd be walking through a gorge. So we'd opted for a long, leisurely breakfast, and were now on our second round of coffee. It was the coffee that was fueling Stephen's lecture. After the next introduction, the Mughals appeared around the same time they were threatening Europe. Different Tibetan lamas became teachers of different Mongol Khans, and the Kamapa chose the wrong Khan. The Khan back in the Dalai Lama was Kubla, who was the next big one after Genghis. 
So the Dalai Lama and the Sakyapas became the rulers of Tibet, sponsored by the political power of the Mughal Empire in China. When the empire collapsed in the middle of the 14th century, Tibet became an open field again. Then a couple of hundred years later, you get the rise of the Gelugpa school inside the Sakyapa. That was started by the great scholar Tsongkhapa, and again we get the same situation. Different groups being sponsored by different Mughal Khans. It's like the Russians and the Americans in Africa. Who's your backer? So this time the Galukpas won, and so the Kamapa and the Kakupas lost for the second time. They must have been really pissed off. But these names I keep hearing for Tibetan Buddhist groups, like Kakupa, are they schools or traditions or what, I asked. Kagyu is really a fiction created by the pressures on Tibet. It's just an easy term for me to use, Stephen explained. They never saw themselves as that in Tibet. Kagyu just means oral tradition, so there are lots of Kagyus. I discovered that in the 80s when I went to Tibet just after it opened. We'd take a land cruiser and drive a couple of hours and I'd ask the local people, what tradition are you? And they'd say, oh, we are the Borden Chalawat. The Borden Chalawat? Yes, this valley has always followed the teachings of Borden Chalulam. You've not heard of him? Each little valley system had allegiance to some obscure teacher from the 12th or 13th century. So there were lots of Kagyus. There was no centralised body like the Galukpa, who were the only true school. But when they all came out of Tibet in 59, the rest realised to survive they needed some kind of cohesion. So they said, look, we'll call ourselves the Kagyupa, and the Kamapa, who headed just one of the Kagyu groups, will acknowledge him as the head of our tradition. And the Nyingma Pa said, we all go back to the teaching of Padmasambhava, so we'll all work together. There was no such thing as the Nyingma tradition before, but in exile they said, Right, Dorjon Rinpoche, you can be the boss. Now what will happen if they all get back into Tibet? Well, the whole fiction will just evaporate. It's the mountains, isn't it? I suggested. Like the way plants divide into separate species because they are isolated in different mountain valleys. Exactly. You have to see Tibetan Buddhism in Tibet to understand it. And that's what you'll be doing. But I still hoped Stephen was going to come with us. The previous evening he sounded like he really might. He'd been talking again about his mother, how innocent she'd been how she'd married a Scottish car mechanic she met when he fixed her car, and then moved to Dundee where Stephen had been born. She only realised her husband was an alcoholic when one day he was sick and she had to walk the dog. Instead of heading for the park, the dog trotted straight to the pub and stood outside. Stephen had mentioned it was her hundredth birthday, and Ajahn Amro said that this year would also have been his father's hundredth, if he had lived, and that he was planning to leave his father's watch on the side of Mount Kailash as a way of thanking him. 
So I suggested, rather romantically, that perhaps Stephen could do something similar for his mother. His reply had a cautious double negative that seemed a good omen. Hmm, that would not be a bad idea. That evening, after we'd settled in, we'd been taken to see the turreted fortress, far larger than the previous kasbahs that dominated the village. Gates opened onto a cobbled inner courtyard, overlooked by slit windows, with a great wooden entrance door that had a slot above it for pouring burning oil onto the enemy. The well was hidden inside the building, where stone steps twisted upwards past doors and corridors that led to rooms that were, until recently, still lived in by the family of the man showing us around. Now they had drying crops spread on their floors. From the battlements we watched the sunset, a dusty red haze arching across the sky. Next morning, after that breakfast, we passed beneath the fortress's outer walls as we left the village. Just beyond it, several men were building a new house, two of them packing wetted mud with a wood thumper into a wooden form atop a half-built wall, while another brought more earth from a nearby excavated hole. Elsewhere in the village, older buildings, all with the distinctive splayed walls like the fortress, were crumbling and returning to the earth. Our track led down and across the valley, the river now just two rivulets meandering across a wide shingle bed. We crossed each by means of a few stepping stones. The agricultural canals we'd been passing further up the valley had siphoned off the rest of the water. A warm path then followed the river bed, sometimes crossing the shingle, but mostly running beside narrow fields that backed onto cliffs. These cliffs were low at first, but grew higher and came closer as we went on. Eventually, there was only us, the small meandering river, and giant oleander bushes between two towering limestone walls. We now had to regularly splash across the river and traverse low heaps of stones and sand. In the gorge it was cool and as we hadn't far to go that day our progression became ever more fitful. Ajahn Amro stopped to ponder each photograph he would take of the gorge or of rock formations or of the small flowers which Mish was finding as she scoured the low cliff faces and Stephen was leaning over the small river to film the light reflected on moving water, or examining the debris hanging from the flowering oleander bushes. He'd already explained how he makes collages from scraps found on his journeys. From amongst the bits of clothing and plastic adorning the shrubs, he tore off several warm pieces of cloth that he then exhibited to us. I did try pointing out others I thought similar in an attempt to help, but he was very particular. All my suggestions were gently dismissed, in the same way he would correct mistakes in what I said about Buddhist theory. That day it was my use of the expression, the truth. 
Now what do you mean by that? he asked. The Buddha never used expressions with a capital letter. No absolutes. He expressed everything in relation to something else. So not freedom, but freedom from suffering. And never the truth. As usual, I had to admit he was right. Eventually we came upon our muleteers, sitting with their backs against the piled luggage, with our lunch prepared some time before. They were gently snoozing as they waited, while their two mules grazed happily nearby on fresh green grass, instead of the hay which was their usual midday fare. They'd stop where the gorge had started to open out, with the first small canal overhung by delicate maidenhair ferns taking water away for a few narrow fields further downstream, and a flock of sheep and goats being directed across the now less steep lower slopes by two young girls in faded flowered dresses. Stephen had taken to looking out for Ajahn Amro during our meals, making sure he was formally offered each of the dishes, which was rather sweet particularly as he's written several times questioning the appropriateness of Buddhist monasticism in the West. That afternoon as we went on, we found thick hedges of roses just coming into pink flower, between fields of young wheat. Our descent in altitude had also brought wild fig trees and occasional stands of giant reed. These were more than ten feet high, and from each came the raucous call of reed warblers. We also spotted the first palm tree, growing amid some houses along with the usual white poplars. Here the poplars had their new leaves fully out, fluttering in the slight breeze. As the afternoon went on and we descended further, more of the roses were in flower until eventually I could take a photo of Mish standing amongst hedges covered in pink. Soon these pink petals would be harvested and taken down the valley to Kilat Magorna, our destination, to be soaked in vast pans of water, so creating rose water, which is then boiled down to produce rose oil. Mid-afternoon we came upon a village where women were doing their daily wash in the river, the drying clothes draped over oleander bushes. The combination of the brighter coloured garments scattered amidst the regular faded debris on the bushes gave Stephen a flashback to his misspent youth. It reminds me of the film Sabrisky Point, the fridge scene where everything exploded, chickens, fruit, bottles of pickles disintegrating and filmed from eight camera angles. This incredible long slow motion scene. Do you remember that? Yes, Agent Amaro replied. A very good scene if you were in a chemically assisted state. I was in a chemically assisted state and it was really amazing. We stayed that night in a cheap hotel in a small town with a map painted on the foyer's wall which gave a bird's eye view of the Atlas Mountains with green strips in the valley bottoms, little villages with their names and lots of ochre with jagged mauve ridges and peaks. 
the guide pointed out the route we'd taken, all the way from Imulgas. He also showed us how next morning we had a choice. We could walk on, now beside the river Keelat, or take a taxi ride there. Mish and I opted for the former, while Stephen and Ajahn Amro preferred the latter. Stephen said he'd felt he'd done the walk now, and fancied a morning doing nothing except sitting in a cafe over coffee, and maybe visiting the rosewater factory, while Ajahn Amro was concerned to get there in time for his meal. But we all got up early to see off our muleteers, who we'd grown very fond of. We gave each a generous tip after praising them for their help, cooking and patience. The guide explained that by setting off at dawn, they hoped to get home in a single very long day, trotting all the way on their unladen mules. Mish and I were joined for our walk by the guide, even though we insisted he could go in a taxi. With his duty nearly discharged, he was more relaxed and wanted to know the names of the flora and fauna for future walks. Mish stopped to give French and English names to the birds and plants we spotted, which the guide then repeated to himself as we walked beside the now much larger Keelat River. We had to cross it on a log pole bridge and balance just as carefully under a cliff on the concrete wall of a canal. We eventually arrived to find our two companions waiting outside the best restaurant. They tried to visit the Rosewater factory, but it wasn't working yet, so instead they spent the morning sipping coffee while watching the activity on the main street. There we had a celebratory meal, before paying the young guide, who was off on an overnight bus to Marrakesh. We spent the night instead in wonderfully named Kwasazat, Morocco's gateway to the Sahara Desert. The next day we took a final grand taxi from there over the mountains. During this long drive, I took the opportunity to ask Stephen how he became disillusioned with the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. It started with a meditation retreat taught by Goenka. The one on which we first met? No, no, another a few months before that. June 73, I think, and held in the Tibetan library in Dharamsala. I think the Dalai Lama had invited Goenka to teach it. There were lots of young Tibetan monks, and any of us Westerners who wanted to attend. That retreat made me question a lot of things the Tibetans had been telling us, such as you can't really meditate until you have done so many prostrations and donkey's years of preliminary studies to gain merit and all that stuff. Instead, here was this simple mindfulness practice, which was really effective. Then after the retreat, Alan Wallace and I wanted to track down the sutta which Mishra Goenka had been teaching from. This was in the context of the Tibetans' claim that they and they alone had the complete canon with everything the Buddha taught, Hinayana, Mahayana and Madrihana. But we found they'd never translated this important sutta. For me, that was the first rupture in my faith. But despite that, 
I stuck with it because I had great admiration for my main teacher. I was also a little turned off by Goenka, because he also proposed unfounded, spurious explanations and insisted you had to just do his technique. Yeah, I interjected. I remember your comment after the retreat we did together. When I asked what you thought of his warning that changing meditation practices was like trying to dig a well for water and then starting over again in different places each time, you said, as far as you were concerned, you now had a shovel to go with your pick and spade. Yes, but those two retreats did make me start to question what I'd been taught. The Galupa school say again and again, don't believe everything but question it. However, of course, we understand question everything in a Socratic sense, i.e. check it out to see if it's true. But the Tibetans don't understand it that way at all. They say check it out until you arrive at the right orthodox view. If you check it out and come up with a different view, that means you haven't checked it out enough. So all that formal one-to-one -one debating with the hand-slapping which I see the young Tibetan monks doing, I asked, is that because the Tibetan teachings have developed as a set of arguments against other traditions and students are expected to learn all the arguments to support their school's view? Exactly. I attended one of those lectures at the Tibetan Library in Damsara where you were. Sue Lum Rockcliffe was travelling with me for the summer and she was studying theology at Cambridge. She dismissed it all as the way they once taught Christianity. Yes, pre-enlightenment, trying to prove what you've already decided to believe. Once we moved to Switzerland with Geshe Rapton, I started studying Western philosophy, theology and psychology. I did a Jungian analysis degree, which helped put Buddhist philosophy into perspective. Then it became less and less possible for me to accept what I was being taught that the study of Buddhism in Tibet in the 14th century was the last word on all things religious and philosophical. It's an absurd position to take. Fine if you are a Tibetan cut off from the rest of the world, but now they're in the West. So I found I couldn't in good faith continue in training as a monk and a teacher. You see, Geshe Rapton had asked me to teach lay groups, and I felt really uncomfortable doing that. I had a lot of love and respect for him, but it felt hypocritical. So that's when you left? Yes, both Alan and I deserted him for much the same reason. We couldn't, or didn't, want to do all that teaching instead of our own practice. Alan left first, then I asked Geshe's permission to go to Korea to try Chan practice. What was his response to that? Why did I want to go when this was the teaching proof wrong in the 8th century debate between Kamala Sila and Tsvang Sang? But he did agree that I should find out for myself. He was an incredibly open man. He had no problem with us trying the Goenka retreat. He said he really respected the Theravada tradition for their Vinaya, or with me doing the Jungian analysis. 
I told him I was only going for a year, but I found the simple charm practice with those long, silent winter retreats so enjoyable. I did come back when I heard he was ill with cancer, but by then I decided the Tibetan tradition wasn't for me. Stephen stayed in that Korean monastery as a Chan monk for some four years, until the teacher died. Since then he's been a layman, writing and teaching with Martine, who he met when she was a Chan nun in the same monastery. His writings with their careful questioning of assumed beliefs in Buddhism annoy some Western Buddhists, particularly those in his old Tibetan tradition but to me it seems he's doing us all a great service. His scholarship opens out the possibilities of what the Buddha might actually have taught, so that we can try to work out, for ourselves, our own path, which to my mind is what the Buddha was encouraging us to do. Maybe sometimes Stephen takes his arguments too far and seems to dismiss essential teachings but so what? He doesn't want anyone to believe him, either. But gentle scepticism seems to be Stephen's way of being, so that there are things he knows through meditation which he finds difficult to acknowledge. In the Atlas Mountains, as well as being very negative about the superstition in Buddhism, he pointed out how the idea of parami earning merit, which occurs throughout Buddhism, arose later and wasn't in scriptures. The Buddha never taught it. He just taught causality. But then I asked him about the concept of grace. Didn't he feel blessed? Was there not a lot of fortune in his life? Even a sense of miracle in how it all came to be? He said it was true there was a lot of fortune, and that he couldn't help but be attracted to the notion that somehow the world came to meet us halfway, if we made the right effort on the spiritual journey. And that this was not understandable. He could not explain how it worked. Stephen does not mention that in his books, or in his theology. The Buddha did not describe it either, at least explicitly, but he did say repeatedly that there were things he knew that he did not teach. It was in Kwasasat that Stephen finally gave us his decision about Mount Kailash. We were sitting outside a cafe on the edge of the paved town square the low evening sun bathing a line of tourist shops in a golden glow. And we were watching the better-off town folk promenade across the square, with several young boys zooming about astride electric cars supervised by their fathers, while their demure headscarf sisters looked on. The walking was done, and it felt as if we could sit there contented forever. Stephen told us he'd really enjoyed the walk over the Atlas Mountains. It had in fact been a revelation, how good it felt to be doing something so simple amidst nature, so that the physical difficulties 
felt irrelevant. Both his mind and his body now felt so much better for it. He slept well. An intermittent digestion problem he suffered with had disappeared and his mind was clear and peaceful. It was something he determined to bring regularly into his life in future. But while the Mount Kailash trip might do the same for him, he felt having had this trip for himself was enough for now and he should think of Martine. By then, it also felt the right decision to me too, both for Martine and also because our Moroccan journey had gone so well, it might be best to leave it at that. What Stephen had told us would help us in understanding Tibet. But I also had a premonition that Mount Kailash might prove more difficult than I expected. Both of those things prove very true. I received one last correction from Stephen that evening, when I summed up this sense of the correct decision with the comment that his participation didn't seem meant to be. Now that's a Totnes take on the world, he rebuked me. Not meant to be. Totnes is the centre of the alternative hippie culture in the UK. He must have got a lot of that when he lived there. And Ajahn Amro added, Yes, I have a campaign against that in the monastery. I would miss Stephen on the pilgrimage, rebukes and all. It's good to spend time with someone with such a discerning mind. Oh.